Pachubana Tamma, Pachubana is a, the present. So this one pointedness includes everything that's here and now, so the sound of silence, the, the body, the breath, the mood. feeling, sensation, heat and cold. And so the, the one point is, is its pure presence. So in this uh, intuitive awareness, and notice that this is this, this what I, I call is the point that includes the ekagata or one-pointedness, it's like the point that includes everything rather than the point that excludes. So this is intuitive, this is intuitive intelligence, it's not dualistic thinking. Uh, so there's awareness, consciousness, Sometimes we're conscious, but we aren't always aware. I mean, we can be conscious and be crazy, you know, but they totally deluded, but still conscious. But this is awakened awareness, informing consciousness, is uh, in using intuitive intelligence rather than uh, acquired knowledge thinking, theories, ideas, concepts, is uh, what we generally, <coughs> what we learn in, in our school. We learn how to use reason and logic. And we get caught in these dualistic positions of right and wrong, good and bad. Where intuitive intelligence includes, it can include right and wrong in the same moment, it's not, or good and bad, or day and night, male and female, all dualisms and opposites are included in the one point rather than divided. <clears throat> now this is a reflecting on on uh, our ability to to trust in intuition. When you think about it, then 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 if you think about it too much, then you you can uh, completely bypass it. Thinking process doesn't doesn't really help that much. It's a, an act of trust of of attention paying attention. So in uh, the world we live in, we, 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 can, we can see the, the, the tensions we create through be, take, making our choices, through div dividing everything into this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, this is suitable, unsuitable. This is what should be, and this is what shouldn't be. We can become very self-righteous when we, when we get very angry because there shouldn't be any unfairness in this world. It, there should be equality and fairness, justice and mercy. There shouldn't be uh, evil things or bad things. Everybody should be good, proper, suitable. There shouldn't be atrocity or murder or dishonesty, uh, all these kinds of things, immorality. And then in any religious attitude, 
religions very much move toward this kind of righteous sense of righteousness of fighting the evil forces and siding with the good. And so the uh, in religion we can become very self-righteous. We're right and we we know that the other the group is wrong. Or fundamentalist attitudes is, an, is a kind of fixity, uh, rigidity in the in the idea that uh, that our group is right, our cult, our way of doing things is right, which makes anyone who doesn't go along with it or agree with it wrong. Because that's the way this this thinking mind works. If you attach to thoughts and ideas, then uh, we easily get kind of petrified in your own righteous attitudes. Our intuition's a bit scary, isn't it? It's like right and wrong, and and when you you can it can be rather frightening because it isn't taking sides. Or if you feel, you know, if I say, this is right, and say, you, you come to me and you say, Ajahn Sumedho is, which is the best form of Buddhism? Is the Mahayana or Theravada, Vajrayana? Uh, why, is, why did you become a Theravadan Buddhist rather than a Zen Buddhist? Is it because uh, Theravada is better than Zen? Or is it more right? And we want you know, maybe you want me to tell you how, how much better this one is than, than something else. We, we might depend on teachers and authorities for a sense of we're doing the right thing because the teacher says we're right and this is the right way and our group is right and we're the best. And then we can, we can all affirm that. We, we get very... We, we all agree. We have to affirm this continuously. And then somebody says, well, I don't agree. I don't agree with you. I think Zen is better. And then we have to excommunicate them. <laughs> we have to kick them out. That, that's what cults do, isn't it? When it cult, cultish, and we use that word in English, it's, it implies this, this sense of we all have to support this illusion of being right and we're the best. We're intuitively don't know. Isn't it? So much of intuition isn't isn't fixing on anything, but the state of opening to mystery, to wonder, to the unknown, uh, <coughs> that includes right and wrong. So it, it seems a bit, you know, you can't trust it, because uh, in, if you're a very righteous person, it's dependent on affirmation, confirmation, uh, somebody telling you what to do next, some, uh, the we all agree, and we get rid of the heretics, the apostates, kick them out, and then we have our little cult of uh, a group of people that we, we, our duty is to affirm our own sense of rightness to each other. There is a kind of security in that, isn't it? It makes you feel safe on a personal level. As long as as you perpetuate that delusion, so intuitive awareness is kind of throwing you out into the unknown, and that's why I emphasize this trusting your ability to know in the present, to be in this state of awareness. Because it's it's something you you can only know directly, and again, you know whether you 
you agree with me, you know, or not, as I'm not asking you to agree, but encouraging you to try it out. Murtasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasana Murtasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasana Murtasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasana Aparuta de ye Gates to the deathless are open, and the those who pay attention, the sotavantas, the those who listen, uh, pay attention, who are present here now. Bamunjantu uh, satang is kind of trust, relax, and trust in this. So this is an attitude of open. Uh, trusting, um, which of course is a, is a very different uh, style to say worldly life, which is to be suspicious, to be protective, to not trust, not to be vulnerable and open, but to uh, develop all kinds of uh, mechanisms to make you feel safe. Trusting and vulnerability, making yourself completely vulnerable, open and trusting, of course, is an act of faith. Because uh, the world around us is also a realm, realm where we can feel very frightened, threatened. Uh, vulnerability is, is dangerous. If we're soft and weak, vulnerable, open, we can be taken advantage of, abused, exploited, and so forth. So they say the worldly mind thinks in this way. Or the survival of the fittest, the kind of law of the jungle, the animal world, our animal nature is don't trust anyone. You just, uh, you know, look after yourself. The cynical... Humans, don't they say, look after yourself, you know, don't trust anyone, there's no God, there's nothing. Uh, if you don't look after yourself, nobody else will. And uh, don't be stupid, you know, get what you can. Of course, that's a very kind of bitter, cynical approach. And, and just living with that is one's philosophy, of course, is, uh, is a realm of suffering is a kind of hell realm. But we all long, don't we, to live in this state of open, trusting, a fearlessness. Like the child, uh, like when I was a child wanting God to, to have created a perfect, ideal world where there was no pain and no misery and no... Uh, where everything was what I made me feel happy and good, safe. So maybe it's too much to ask, you know, <laughs> to trust. Because, uh, you know, dealing with people is, I think uh, there is so much fear in regards to how we relate to each other. When you take off the the masks of good manners, social etiquette, politeness, uh, so forth, then there's a lot of anxiety and fear of being looked down on, of being criticized, of being made fun of, of humiliation, of being taken advantage of, and so forth. So you can see that the religious goal is like going against the whole worldly 
of the worldly values, the the world that that where there is the world based on fear and ignorance, and of course, we are uh, now our refuge is in not in fear or in ignorance or in the world, but in what is true and real in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Now those are just words. I admit, what is Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and it's uh, for people who don't. Uh, you know, don't understand those words, or those words remain exotic, foreign, alien words. Uh, this, this is, uh, of course, what you want to make out of those words. At first, you might Buddha might might, might not mean much. I remember when I first uh, became a monk in Thailand, and they used the mantra Bhutto, and and in Thai it comes out Puto. And and so puto sounds rather comical, you know. In English, the put and, and that isn't doesn't inspire in sound at all. So so uh, it you know it's the thing. It's supposed to go around saying puto puto, and and it sounded funny, you know. But now I say puto, and I and I, I know what I I mean. It really touches me. It really means a lot. It's uh, like the word Buddha and the, the Buddhist symbols I've internalized. I've made them work for me. But it did take a determination. It doesn't just happen like, you know, like suddenly you're supposed to say, I say the word Buddha, you're supposed to feel really inspired by the word. But uh, it does, as you, you know, internalize these these words and get to to know the reality of that. It's not just a, an ideal or some abstraction. It's pointing to a, to a reality. And that reality is, as I said before, this awareness. This state of, of witness, as we call it, being the witness, the knower, uh, is the one who knows, the awakened, um, Buddha is, of course, uh, it can be personified. You can have Buddha images because it, it conveys, uh, it, it's, not, it's not a kind of uh, abstract knowledge or kind of uh, bodiless force in the universe. It is, uh, we have Buddhas, we had a, a sage, we had a, uh, a founder of Buddhism called uh, Shakyamuni Buddha or Gotama, the Buddha. But it isn't, doesn't, but they were taking refuge in, in the Buddha. It doesn't mean taking refuge in somebody who lived 2,500 years ago. <laughs> it's taking refuge in the immediacy, the reality of awakened awareness. Buddha knows the Dhamma. You know, the Dhamma is another exotic word for us, but uh, how to make that work is, of course, to use the word and then look at the reality of Dhamma. Dhamma includes everything. So it includes all thoughts, feelings, all forms, consciousness. It includes the deathless, the unconditioned, the unborn, the uncreated, Everything, if you, good and evil are Dhamma, right and wrong are Dhamma. There is nothing that you can think of or imagine that is not that. But the Buddha knows Dhamma, so, so the Buddha knows what goodness is, what badness is, what right and wrong are. And that knowing isn't a knowing of, uh, say, of taking preference or of uh, passing judgment, but a knowing. Uh, it's an intuitive knowing, uh, a form of wisdom. It's wisdom knowing the way it is. So in terms of our relationship to the society, to ourselves as human beings, to the planet that we live on, to the universe we live in, then our we take the sila, like at the beginning of 
of this retreat the the uh, eight precepts is a, is a determination to do the good and refrain from doing the bad. So we we know the difference. We know when acting or speaking or acting on what is kind and generous, uh, good, helpful, brings unity and harmony, um, brings peace, then, then we can act, we can speak. That can be our active side in, in the society and the relationships that we have. And then the, the other, the dark side, the anger, the hatred, the aversion, the, the uh, jealousy and fear and all this is what we don't act on. But it's still Dhamma, isn't it? We still see it in, and know it for what it is. But it's our passive, how we, we, we know evil and badness. Buddha knows it's that way, but it's not how we act or speak into the into the world that we're living in. So but both good and evil are dhammas. And the knowing itself is Dhamma. So the Buddha knows the Dhamma and and this then this Dhamma is what we take refuge in. Not in good or evil, but in the what we call the deathless or the uh, Amata Dhamma or the transcendent. So this very ability to know is a transcendence of good and evil. So just just co- contemplate this, this ability to know when, when you think a good thought or a bad thought. There's a transcendence, isn't it, immediate to that, that. The fact that you know goodness is good. A transcending or badness is bad. To know that to do good, you know, to have the wisdom to know to do good and refrain from doing bad is, is a transcendent knowing of the way it is. So we're actually taking refuge in, in this transcendent knowing or deathless reality or what we call the middle way. The Majjima Bhattibhata. So it's, it's not a matter of trying to, to realize or, recog- or to recognize the deathless or the transcendent, but it's a matter of trusting in being that. In... in so it's it's a it's the imminent act of uh, of not of of trying to think about it, analyze it. Am I the transcendent, or is that just a bunch of rubbish? <laughs> but in being that, being the knowing, because uh, it's it's not what you can get behind. It's something that you can be, but not become. So we can call it pure presence, pure knowing. Uh, tra- it's transcendent, it's not personal. It doesn't have any label on it. It belongs to anybody or any religion. It doesn't belong to any religious convention. It's, it's all Buddhist and, it's, and, and the, we've got the, the copyright on transcendence. <laughs> But religions, of course, refer to it in different ways. And so don't be confused by the fact, the, the terminologies. But, be, but this encouragement to trust in being, that being the knowing, being the witness. And therefore it's not, not a critical function. When you start criticizing, then you're back into the right and wrong, good and bad, the dualistic world of conditionality. So as long as you identify with that, then you're always in conflict with something, isn't it? Taking sides, you always have an enemy, Uh, there's always uh, something that's better than what you have, or you think you're better than somebody else, or you, you want 
our group to be better than some other meditation group? Or you think, what is the best form of Buddhism? I want to become, uh, I want to join the best club, you know. I don't want to belong to an inferior organization. So we look for the, the best. Because we think the best is where it's at. But best is a condition, isn't it? It's still the world as well as the worst. So the, it's not a matter of, of having to have the best of, of anything, but in trusting in being the knowing. It's pure intelligence. It's not, a, it's not like... It, it, you might think, if I just witness things, then you know, there's a kind of fear that I'll just be kind of a zombie or, or uh, you know, I, I won't be able to function in the world because in the world, you know, you must be realistic, Sumedho. Let's, let, you know, you, you, you're one of those monks lives up in ivory tower. Probably, you know, you aren't, you aren't down in the, you know, in the real world where, you know, you can't just live in a transcendent knowing. You've got to face the facts. <laughs> so. But in my own experience, and you know, even though you might think monastic life is some kind of ivory tower existence, <laughs> it's not at all. <laughs> uh, even though sometimes it, you know, when you, you know, trips to, to the city and so forth, uh, pretty, well, I remember a couple of months ago, a friend of mine took me to, into London and uh, we went down the Thames River from the embankment to Greenwich and then we had a very nice day uh, looking around and going through that tunnel under the river and then taking the electric train back in the evening, letting off the right where the Bank of England is. We went down into the underground, got into the train, an IRA warning. There was a phantom bomber loose in the London underground. <laughs> Scary, isn't it? This was for me, because I don't live there, this is kind of excitement, it's like an adventure. So we rushed, <laughs> rushed out of the train. Spent walking, uh, you know, a pleasant evening walking to by uh, to St. Paul's, and then finally the the danger passed, and finally got back to Amavati. But you know, if you're going uh, walking through the streets of London when everybody's going home from work, and you've been living in a monastery most of the time, it's quite entertaining to see people just rushing around. <laughs> All this tension, and they don't even notice. They, they kind of they they look at me. And they, you know, <laughs> you know. But it doesn't slow them down. You know. <laughs> not the danger. <laughs> but this is this is also this this. Uh, is to be tested, you know, like the, this, uh, this transcendent knowing is something to, you know, to develop and test out. But to, to be that, you have to trust in it. So, in this way, it's quite practical. My trust is in, in paying attention to life, being with the flow. In this stillness of the mind, in, the, in, the, in what I call the sound of silence, in this stillness, in this, as this expands, as I trust it more, then, then there is a seemingly an increasing spaciousness, a kind of inf even an, infi an infinite space where the, the good and evil arise and cease, or the thoughts, or the emotions. So it's like I'm not just caught in the, in the power of my emotions and thoughts like I used to be. Used to be, I was just a kind of helpless victim of what I was thinking or feeling. So I, you know, I, I didn't know how to, I didn't have any space to operate in. 
So I did have to be careful, you know, I had to protect myself, had to, you know, make sure that, that I had my suit of armor on and that, that my radar was all, you know, operating and so that I could just feel, you know, I couldn't get caught in a, in a place where, you know, I couldn't cope. So I, I did have to operate in, in that way when there was no space, no perspective on anything. When I was just a helpless victim of my conditioning. But in the, through meditation then, I feel this sense of this, this uh, seemingly infinite spaciousness that is what I really am, you know. If I'm anything, I'm that. And that, I trust in that, in being, because in this space, in this spaciousness, it's not a kind of airy-fairy uh, kind of, uh, kind of spacey, spaced out type of experience. I'm not kind of spaced out, as they say, or spacey. I'm fully with this, this present uh, moment and with the conditions that, that are present in this moment. But the relationship to those conditions, it gives perspective. I have distance. I can, I can, uh, I can operate with them. I can do. I have. A, I can respond to them in in a more skillful way than I can if I'm just helplessly reacting, out of habit to the impingement and pressures on me, on the conditioning of my mind. So this, this breeds a kind of fearlessness, a sense of a, a courage I didn't have before. This even works in, in terms of, uh, I found, like I used to be very uh, frightened of heights, a kind of what they call acrophobia, where you just, you're up high in, in a narrow place and you look down and, and, you know, and I would almost panic. I couldn't bear to look down because of two kind of fear would take me over. Um, so in uh, 97, when I went on my attempt to go to Mount Kailash, you know, and I, we went on several uh, excursions in Europe, uh, Switzerland and places like that, where they have mountains, and climbing up high in the mountains, walking on narrow ledges, in the silence of my mind, like the fear would not arise. The same thing in the, in the Himalayas, I found out I, I didn't have a problem with fear because uh, I, could, I, could, I knew how to, to be with this and to, to, how to uh, be with this silence in which the fear couldn't grab me, couldn't, couldn't get a foothold in my, in my jitta, in my mind. Because with fear, isn't it? You have to think about it. You have to think, oh God, look at that. And what if I fall? And, and then the emotional experiences of, you know, that, that, that linger and hang around you, get, throw you into, into various kinds of panic. But if you trust in this, this awareness, then, then the fear cannot really get a foothold in, in, in you. So it, it, it it falls away. The second noble truth then is the cause of suffering, and and like dukkha and non-dukkha. When you think of the four noble truths, actually, it's a teaching about suffering and non-suffering. So even though they say Buddha taught about suffering, he also pointed the way or pointed to non-suffering. So the first two noble truths deal with suffering, and the second, and the third and fourth deal with non-suffering. So the realization uh, of non-suffering. And it's this knowing, this awareness, that we know the difference between suffering and non-suffering. Sometimes we're suffering, we didn't even know we're suffering. And sometimes we're not suffering at all, but we think we're suffering. <laughs> so if, if you think, you know, I'm a sufferer, then even when there is no suffering, you think, you assume you're suffering. 
Or I know people that suffer a lot, and they ask me, no, I don't suffer. And then, you know, they look at their tension in their face, and, and uh, are you suffering? Are they, no, 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 not at all. I don't suffer. <laughs> because they don't know the difference. They haven't seen, you know, they, they just assume, you know, they don't want to admit maybe they're suffering. That'd be too unbearable to have to admit. Or others just assume, you know, look, I'm a real sufferer. I've suffered all my life, from the day I was born. <laughs> I had a, suffered a lot as a child. A teenage, adolescence, puberty was miserable. And then when I finished in university life, I was miserable all through university. <laughs> I got married and was miserable. Divorced, I was miserable. <laughs> Life is miserable, and then, but it's not really. When they, when you, you know, the the fact that you just assume that you're miserable, then you're not aware when there when there is no misery. So this this uh, this awareness allows you to see the the suffering and non-suffering. You know the difference very clear. It's not, not just a vague kind of whim or hope of the mind. You, you actually know when there is and when there is not. You know when there's self and no self. This knowing knows the difference between my sakyaditi, ego, sense of myself as a person and when it's not there. It knows the difference between desire and desirelessness. When there's desire and attachment and no desire. It knows grasping and non-grasping. You know, so it knows when there's grasping and when there's not. It knows samsara and nibbana. There's a knowing of samsara and nibbana. So this knowing then is discerning. It's a discerning. It's panya. So. But it's not a criticism. It's not saying, why does there have to be any samsara, self, dukkha, desire? If I were God, I would have not created desire, self, dukkha, attachment. I would have created only nibbana. Create nibbana. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, this is like, you know, we want, you know, life should be just Nibbana or peace. We said, I want peace. And I don't want strife or war. And I want harmony. I don't want disharmony. And I want uh, happiness and no suffering. But in terms of knowing, it's not a matter of, of wanting, but knowing the way it is. So, Peace is like this, war is like this, and, and harmony is like this, disharmony is like this. So this, this knowing is, is what we begin to trust in. It's a discerning, to re- reiterate this, discerning knowing, but it's not a judgmental thing. It's not saying there shouldn't be any suffering but it knows suffering and knows non-suffering. And it's not personal. It's not, you know, I can't claim it from my ego and say, I am the knower of the world. <laughs> and I can say that, but, it, but that is not, you know, that, that gives the wrong message, doesn't it? It's, it sounds egotistical. So it's not a matter of of me claiming it, but of being, of trusting, where there's no no name, give it no name, doesn't have, you don't have to be anything. You don't have to know who you are. Uh, it's just to know that you're not this or that. It's <laughs> enough. So, <laughs> like, like to see, isn't it? You don't have to see your own eyes to see. You don't have to have one eye looking at the other. <laughs> Or, you know, you don't have to prove that you have eyes because you can see. And so you look into a mirror and you see reflection of your eyes, but that's not my eyes, it's a reflection. 
If I look into a mirror and I see I can look into my eyes, but that's a reflection, and that's not the eyes. That's a reflection of the, of the eyes. But even if there were no mirrors, it would it'd still be fine. It still could, you know, be quite happy without a mirror, in fact. <laughs> Especially as you get older. <laughs> it's better not to have too many around. And you have, have, but seeing is like this, isn't it? Not thinking that, that I have to prove I have eyes, but because the very fact of seeing is enough of knowing, of being the knowing is enough. You don't have to, to, to know the knower because that's what you really are. That, that is what you are. That's, a, that's, that's the, the, the still point. That's the, but it's not personal. It's not like I am, you know, tomato. I'm a, a knower as a person. It's the natural law. It is the way it is. So we don't claim it as, as an individual thing or personal attainment. And if we do, then it, then it is a very kind of, it's you know, it's 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 not, it can be very deluding to say I am God or I am the, the old enlightened one and things like this because that tends to sound egotistical. We don't have to even think those thoughts, because the the trust is in the is in the imminent act of knowing, not in an idea or a perception of being someone that knows anything. So that is an act of faith, also, isn't it? To trust in, because the the thinking mind, which we're very strongly identified with, always wants to know everything. Well, and who is the knower? And we, we, want to, we want to, tell me who it is. It's like everybody's desire to know, is there a God or not? And so the, and you've got to prove it. You know, show me God. Bring him here. Let me see him. And then I'll believe. But we can't do that. But how do you know God is not through uh, seeing God as an object, but a being, isn't it? It's an intuitive reality rather than a than than an objective form that you have to uh, see in order to believe in it. So, in terms of the Dhamma, in in and the Buddha knowing the Dhamma, it's not a, trying to prove that Buddha, uh, you know, that there's a Buddha that you have to should bring Buddha here and let me see. And, and let us question Buddha and see if, uh, you know, he comes out all right, if I can approve of what he has to say. <laughs> but it's not thinking, I am the Buddha either, but it is in being that, being the knowing, the awakened, and trusting in awakened awareness. Intuitive awareness, then, is the point that includes so it's uh, this present here and now, isn't it? The one-pointedness is, is about here and now. It's not about a little point. So we begin, I mean, this is just one way of reflecting, you know. We can think of ekagata as one little point that's here, and in order for me to to concentrate on that point, I have to shut you out, and that's a little point that separates it. That means that I can't, I can't include you in that point. But the point that includes is, is in this state of awareness, isn't it? Because it's intuitive. An intuitive moment includes. It's not a, a divisive experience, but an inclusive one. So this is just to keep reminding you of the difference between what think, how thinking operates, which is to divide, to start as you, as soon as you attach to thought, ideas, emotions, your identity with your body, then you're, you're creating this division all the time. 
and then there's fear because I am this body then then how do I know what you know how you know there might be a madman in the room might want to kill me that's possible kill this body they're going to kill me so the identity with the body brings fear with with me as a personality isn't it you might reject me you might uh, humiliate me you might uh, embarrass me or do something to me as a personality that uh, that I don't want and I dread so this sense of me in terms of a thing a person um, a personality a type or anything like that then is the realm where we back into fear and desire but as soon as we trust in the knowing of that then it's transcending this it's a transcending of the body of the emotional state the the thoughts the memories because it's pure knowing it's not, it doesn't have any memories of its own it's not it's not comparing one thing with another saying this is better than that but it's knowing it's like this discerns that goodness is, is like this, badness is like this, the suffering, non-suffering, self and non-self, grasping and non-grasping, knows that it is this discerning ability that comes through this transcendent awareness. Contemplating uh, many times in the Buddhist world, they don't talk about these things in, because uh, there's so much emphasis on seeing everything as a Nietzsche dukkanata, isn't it? And in Vipassana, oftentimes you never get to, you never, you, you know, how many people doing Vipassana realize the deathless? You know, they're very, they're brilliant at a Nietzsche dukkanata after so many years. But but just just seeing a Nietzsche dukkanata tends to uh, limit us to just the conditioned realm, and so we get ideas that all conditions we 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 make these generalizations. All conditions are a Nietzsche dukkanata, and then we think that that's wisdom. Then nibbana, in terms of of our experience, we think. Well, that's, you know, that's Nibbana. That's, a, oh, you know, it's very high up. And uh, that's, you know, you know, it's very, you know, it's, that's the ultimate. That's the best. Someone who's realized Nibbana, someone who's got to Nibbana, Nirvana. And now the word's used for everything that's kind of the best, isn't it? And you have it's a popular word. You see it everywhere. Something that they're saying this is the absolute best. Call it nirvana. And uh, paradise or happiness used as a word to describe maybe you know really being happy all the time or something that's perfect. But in terms of of our own realization of nirvana, what is it? You know, but if you if you take this word and you elevate it, make it high, what can you do with it? You know, it's like the stars up in the sky. It's, it's so high, you can't touch them. All you can do is admire them from below. And but in then but this isn't what the Buddha meant by nibbana or sangsara. We think we're stuck in the sangsara, and and nibbana is a state. You know that we we uh, we can. Uh, elevate to some, you know, supreme attainment, and the more we think like that, the higher it becomes, and 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 we don't realize it, the reality of it, when it's present. We we because we we've, we've already decided that it's way above us, so it's up in the sky, and and we're down here. But in terms of now, we're bringing this down to this here and now to the point that includes rather than the point that separates. So when you try to define Nibbana 
and describe nibbana and 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 all that then uh, oftentimes you do you do sound it be you know it's an exotic word and it can and and even in buddhist countries it, the word itself is is elevated to a very high place so the feeling is it's it's unreachable in fact i've even met buddhist monks in asia who said you can't attain nibbana these days <laughs> the, how do you know <laughs> Have you ever tried? <laughs> I say, no, no, the days are gone. This is just, all you can do is get a better rebirth. I think, you don't really, you don't, you don't really understand Buddhism. You don't get the Buddhist teaching. When Pachawan, when somebody, when some monks told him that, he said, then why are you monks? You just want a free meal, don't you? <laughs> You're in it for the perks and all, you know. <laughs> so this, but now we're 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 not interested in in the in these high, high-minded ideas or these inspired elevations uh, and superlatives of the English language or of any language. But we're we're bringing it down to the here and now, to this point that includes everything. So, in the practicalities of of Theravada usage, uh, you know, Nibbana is the realization of non-grasping. To know non-grasping. And to know non-grasping, you have to know what grasping is like. So, you know, if you're coming from the ideal of Nibbana as the as non-grasping, realization of non-grasping, then, then you think, well, you know, I grasp at everything. I'm attached to everything. I love my children. I'm very attached to my house. I'm attached to my car. I'm attached to my job. I'm attached to my profession. I'm attached to my cat, my dog, my goldfish. <laughs> So I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm full of upadana and clinging and grasping. Uh, and so then it, it sounds like, you know, that uh, you have to get rid of your goldfish, your cat, your dog, your car, your profession, your partner, your children, your house, become a monk or a nun. And, uh, and then, then when you become a monk or a nun, you can start grasping. I want to. I want to be at this monastery. I don't want to be at that one. And I like this teacher better than that teacher. And and you get grasping about your robes. You think, you know, this. I want a certain kind of robe, and and uh, I want. Uh, and you have a position. You know, I'm a senior monk, and you get very attached to. I'm a senior monk. I'm an ajahn. I'm a. <laughs> I'm an abbot of a monastery. <laughs> so that these can we can feel, you know, these are uh, we can almost feel that this realization of non-attachment is is if we're idealizing, we're thinking we shouldn't be attached. But that's not it, is it? It's not thinking I shouldn't be attached. It's recognizing attachment is like this. So if I'm attached to being a monk, it doesn't mean I have to disrobe, does it? It's just recognizing attachment is like this, grasping this idea, I am a monk, I am a abbot, and I am an ajahn, and therefore that grasping is seen, you know, I realize that I can recognize, I investigate, I'm I'm willing to grasp that completely, consciously, you know, take it to absurdity, to its ultimate misery, and then you can, you have the insight, well, let go of it. But it doesn't mean that I have to throw it away. It means I, 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 I release my attachment. I mean, I let it be what it is, and rather than, than holding 
then the realization of Nibbāna, as simple as that, realizing, recognizing, non-attachment is like this. Still abbot, still monk, still ajahn, but the, the knowing the difference between identity to this position, uh, holding on, grasping it, and non-grasping. So, it's not a matter of of having to prove I'm not grasping anything by throwing it all away, isn't it? Getting rid of the cat, the dog, the goldfish, the partner, the children, the house. It's not a matter of throwing that all away just to prove you're not attached because you can be very attached to the idea of non-attachment, isn't it? That's an ideal. I shouldn't be attached. And therefore you get very attached to the ideal and that's still, that's not Nibbāna, is it? So it's, it's the imminent act of non-attaching in the mind, isn't it? This emptiness, this stillness, this non-attachment is like this, attachment is like this, non-attachment is like this. So there's a, a you know, the discerning of the difference. Now apply that to this, to the ego or the self and non-self, like atta and anatta. Like we can think of anatta means uh, you know I have absolutely no personality left. Uh, I I have no you know I'm just a kind of zombie maybe anatta. I I don't feel anything. If I have no personality, uh, and and I you know just kind of a uh, an emotionless uh, being that that uh, you know has nothing but pure awareness, and we can see that in terms of of an ideal. Or is anatta just, just knowing when there is attachment to the self and when there's non-attachment? Well, for me to become a person. I have to start thinking. If there's just pure awareness, there's no person. There's, there's no sense of a personality. Now as you learn to, to trust in this awareness, in this stillness, you know, as you, as you increase this kind of spaciousness, you can, you can test it out. Is there, do you exist as a person or is there just, is it pure consciousness? I can't find a person in it. It's certainly intelligent and awake and aware, include, but there's no sense of a person till I start thinking. Till I I am Ajahn Tomato, I'm Abbot, I am an Ajahn, I am uh, uh, from this place and all that, then and, and me in mind, what I feel, what I think, and and what I've done with my life, and what I should have done, what I shouldn't have done, and and all the then I become a person. But then, when I stop doing that, then the person's gone. But there's still this there's still awareness, knowing, and so knowing non-self is like this. Knowing self is like. Like this, this you, you, you can prove to yourself. When when I become a person, you know, on a conventional level, I'm quite willing to operate on that, you know, as a person. So somebody says Ajahn Sumedho, I'll say yes. You say, you say Ajahn Sumedho, and I just look blank. You say. You say what do we call you then? <laughs> no name. <laughs> hey, you with no name. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's getting to a point where the you know, the conventional reality is not the problem. It's the grasp. It's the ignorant grasping of it that that is that is the cause of suffering. So. You know, on the level of conventional reality, you know, when somebody, uh, when I have to get a passport, I'm quite willing to sign my name and 
and and my birth date and all that. You know, not not trying to expect the immigration office to be, uh, you know, tuned into Nibbana. So, <laughs> so I'm willing to work in the level that they understand. So, uh, conventional reality is fair enough. But knowing the difference, isn't it? There's a knowing, and and when the appropriateness of that. When it's appropriate to be Ajahn Sumedho, and when it's no longer appropriate, and that that's, that takes an awareness of time and place, takes wisdom to know when being Ajahn Sumedho is is appropriate and suitable, and when it's no longer appropriate and suitable. That's that's awareness. Desire and desirelessness. The second noble truth, there's this, uh, you know, uh, three kinds of desire, gamadana, pavadana, vipavadana. So it's not taking the view, I shouldn't have any desires, grasping the idea that, that desire is bad and I shouldn't be attached to desire is an idea, isn't it? So I'm attached to the idea, viraga, I shouldn't have any desires. I've got to conquer desire and get rid of my desires. That can be an attachment to an ideal. So it's not getting rid, but really knowing desires like this and desirelessness is, is like this. That discerning that comes through awareness. So this is encouraging you to trust in this. In your ability to do it, even though you think maybe, you know, whatever you think about your, you know, that you can't do it, listen to that. Start from where you're at. If you think, oh, I don't think I, be aware of that as a creation of your mind. You know, if you, if right now, if you, whatever you think, oh, I'm, you know, I can't, I can't really do that. Be aware of that. That is a condition, you know. Start from where, from the way it is now. So if you doubt your ability, then be aware of that. I can't do it. Is, or it's too much. Or it's too, I don't even know what he's talking about. You can <laughs> be aware of that. <laughs> that that is, that is a, a, you know, something you're creating now. So the awareness of that. Trust in the awareness. And so it's encouraging this, this the pointing to this ability to know that you, whatever you're thinking right now, there's an awareness that you're thinking it, isn't it? You're not, you know you're thinking. So you can even deliberately think. You can think, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> say it to yourself and listen to it. And that which is listening and aware and that which is thinking is separate, isn't it? You can, I, you know, I deliberately think thoughts and listen to myself thinking. That which listens, which knows, is is not the thought itself. So this is we're pointing to this transcendence, this this knowing, uh, is is something you begin to to realize, to recognize, and to trust in, where the thought itself. Whatever it might be, good thought or bad thought or a true thought or a false thought, but you know thinking is like this. You're not thinking. You're not a thought. You're not an ideal. You're not anything that you think or imagine. But you can be this 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 awareness. So even like, like taking I am um, the most wonderful person in the whole world and think, deliberately think it. And you, that which is aware and that which thinks is separate. You can be aware of or listening to your own thoughts or your own feelings. You know, you can be aware that anger, that you're feeling anger or you're aware that you're feeling lonely or sad or despairing, the awareness of that is not the condition itself. So you reflect on, 
this awareness is your refuge, not the, don't take refuge in the condition. So this does take reflection to, and experimentation, so you begin to, to know the difference. It's, at first it, seem, it might seem even possible, but don't even believe that. Keep, keep practicing, ex- playing around with it, you know, experimenting, till you begin to, to know the difference between knowing, discerning, and, and the thing that you're, that, and the objects that you, you're discerning. So, like I found deliberate thinking quite useful, you know, deliberate thinking intentionally, but the idea of listening to myself thinking and then questioning that which is aware, that which is listening, is not the thought. And more and more as I kept exploring that, then I began to trust and relax into this pure awareness, the more aware that sound of silence, and this openness where the thoughts come and go. So thoughts move very quickly. You can, you know, thinking is a rapid, uh, has a a rapidity, but emotion lingers. But as you create this space and this, this infinite space, then the lingering part of your emotional experience you're aware of, and you can observe it and watch it cease. You know, so the present, the presence of anger and the absence of it. The discerning is knowing anger is like this, non-anger is like this. So that's enough for this evening and uh, to offer this as a reflection. Andamayang o vadagata sadhu karang